Our passage this morning comes from Joshua chapter 23. This passage is the second of three speeches that Joshua is giving to the, to the people of Israel towards the end of his life. So last week, Pastor John preached on chapter 22 in which the Transjordan tribes uh, began to make their way back across the river to the inheritance that they had received when Moses had defeated the kings on the east side of the Jordan. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to see uh, and hear Joshua's final words to the people of Israel as they renew their covenant with him at Shechem and as the Lord challenges them to decide whom will they, who they will serve, whether they will continue to serve him in the land or whether they will turn away from him towards the gods of the people of Canaan. Farewell addresses from substantial figures in the Old Testament like Joshua occur frequently. And if we're to look back at Deuteronomy, we would see several similarities to the final speeches that Moses gave as he was preparing to die and the people of Israel were getting ready to enter the land. At the beginning of chapter 23, Joshua summons the leaders of all the tribes of Israel to exhort them to resist the temptation to prematurely end the conquest. His concern isn't primarily one that is political or military necessarily. In fact, in verse 1, we see that this is a period in which the Lord has given Israel rest from their surrounding enemies. Instead, his concern is about Israel maintaining their, faithful, their covenant faithfulness by purifying the land of idolatry. Joshua knows that an Israelite compromise with the Canaanites will result in the mixing of the pure worship of Yahweh with the idols of the people of the land. He also knew that God had been very clear with his, that his people are to be holy and that their continued dwelling in the land and with the presence of Yahweh depended on their adherence to the covenant. The worship of false gods would result in God executing the covenant curses on them and then being exiled from the land. So Joshua's message to the leaders this morning is, do not compromise. In his appeal to them, he will remind them of the Lord's faithfulness in keeping his promises to the conquest generation, to instruct them in the proper response to that faithfulness, and to warn them about the consequences of turning away from the Lord and towards the people of their land and their gods. My aim this morning is to help us see three main themes from Joshua's speech that can help us as New Testament people, as the New Testament people of God, resist the temptation to compromise with sin. So the points of today's sermon are, first, resist compromise out of love for God. The second point is resist compromise by considering the Lord's faithfulness. And the third point is resist compromise by considering the Lord's warnings. Those points again are resist compromise out of love for God, resist compromise by considering the Lord's faithfulness, and resist compromise by considering the Lord's warnings. If you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23. And kids, that can be found on pages 197 and 198 of the Bibles that the church has given you. We'll go ahead and read the entire passage together first, and then we'll come back and examine it in smaller sections in more detail. Hear the word of the Lord from Joshua. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, 
Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have all seen that the Lord your God has done to all the nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this to this day. For the Lord your God has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations from out before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorn in your eyes, thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, And you know in your heart and souls, all of you, that no one word has failed all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the ground, off the good land that he has given to you. This is God's word. We see that the events of chapter 23 occur a long time afterward when the Lord had given rest to the people of Israel from all their surrounding enemies and when Joshua was well advanced in years. Joshua had previously been described as old and advanced in years all the way back in chapter 13 when he began the process of allotting the land to the western tribes. When the process of dividing up the land began, we learned that the conquest was not yet complete and that the people of Israel still had land that needed to be possessed. So we're not exactly sure how much time has passed, using using past, but using the same words to describe Joshua in chapter 23 as in chapter 13 seems to indicate that this is very close, uh, that the events of chapters 22 through 24, where we find ourselves, occur relatively soon after the completion of the main thrust of the conquest, which ended in chapter 11. But nevertheless, there were Canaanites still living in the land that God had given Israel. And Joshua wants to be clear with the leaders that though they are safe from the surrounding tribes, they will face the temptation to compromise with the people who remain. 
So what does this compromise look like? Well, if we look back to chapters 16 and 17, we see where the people of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh failed to drive out the Canaanites who lived in the land of their inheritance. But instead, they allowed them to continue to live on as forced laborers. God had, com- had clearly and repeatedly commanded Israel to utterly dispossess them, but these tribes disobeyed and allowed those people to remain. And so it's in this context of compromise and Joshua's concern that Israel would break the covenant that he calls the leaders of Israel together so that they can hear his plea. And the heart of his plea is found in the middle of our passage in verse 11. It's simple, yet loaded with rich meaning. Verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. The word for love that's used in this verse is used throughout scripture to, de- to uh, describe an intimate affection. For example, this is the word that is used when the Bible describes Isaac's love for Rebekah or Israel's love for Joseph. Given the context, it's very likely that the sense of what Joshua is communicating here is that the love that Israel is to have for God is the same that a faithful wife has for her husband. Joshua wants Israel to keep a watchful guard on their affection for the Lord, who has fought for them and given them an inheritance in this good land. He's aware that simply paying lip or eye service to the Lord is not going to be, is not going to be enough to keep Israel faithful to their covenant obligations. Outward obedience isn't enough to preserve their special relationship with the Lord. Without genuine tenderheartedness towards God, it's only a matter of time before Israel is led astray to worship the gods of the people who remain in the land. So what does loving God look like? Well, it looks like, the resi- it looks like resisting temptation to compromise with the Canaanite remnant. Look at verses 6 through 8. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. So in these verses, we see both an exhortation and a prohibition intended to instruct Israel on what their love of God should look like. Israel is exhorted to cling to the Lord your God by being strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses and not turning aside from it. We heard a nearly identical command given to the Transjordan tribes by Joshua back in chapter 22, verse 5. And Joshua connects the love of God with being careful to obey him and clinging to him with true devotion. So continuing with this marriage motif, The word cling is the same word in Hebrew that's translated as to hold fast in Genesis 2.24. And in that passage, the Bible's describing the bond of marriage that God creates between Adam and his wife. Both submission and devotion to God are the proper attitude for Israel because they've been provided for and protected by the Lord during their conquest of Canaan. The Lord's commands are good because they reflect his character and point Israel to life. The Lord's commands are good because they reflect his character and point Israel to life that can only be found in him. 
So a careful study of his word and a life that takes his commands seriously are to be the hallmarks of Israel, ensuring their time in the land will be long and prosperous. In addition to an exhortation, Joshua also gives a prohibition. He prohibits the people of Israel from mixing with the Canaanite remnant. So this is both a specific prohibition about things like marriage and cultic prostitution and other kinds of sexual activity with the Canaanites, as well as a general prohibition against entering into the kinds of close relationships that may cause the hearts of Israel to be drawn into false worship. We see yet again the use of this marriage imagery, particularly fidelity in this case. To communicate the gravity of Joshua's commands, Yahweh is Israel's loving husband, and Israel is to be Yahweh's faithful wife. The faithful, this faithfulness manifests itself in obedience and willing submission, motivated by loving affection and gratitude. As a faithful wife, Israel not only abstains from adultery, the outright idolatry of mentioning, swearing by, serving, or bowing down to foreign gods, but resists even the temptation of being drawn into idolatry by abstaining from the practice of mixing with idolatrous people. Ultimately, Israel's practice of guarding their affections is motivated by a love for the Lord that exceeds their love for their own comfort and their own desires. So as I studied this passage this week, it forced me to ask myself whether I desire to fight sin and pursue holiness out of a love for God. Do I have a genuine affection for him? Our joy and gratitude for his grace the attitudes that motivate my devotion to him? Do I cherish his, his friendship and his husbandry over my life and over my life with my family and in the church? And am I filled with hope and anticipation as I look forward to the day when, we'll, when I'll be in his presence again? Does love motivate me to repentance and renew my desire to put to death the earthly things that are in me? And being honest with myself, I have to admit that this is true sometimes, but not as often as it should be. For me, far too often, my love is cool, and my devotion wanes. I see God as an authority to be obeyed, but not necessarily as a loving father who cares for me. My actions are often motivated by a desire to either earn his approval or at a minimum, keep him mildly disinterested in me while I pursue my own ambitions. Obedience is often an obligation to be endured, not a privilege to be enjoyed with my whole heart. If you can relate to my struggle to love the Lord, I'd like to offer you some encouragement. The truth is that the Lord loves us far more than we even appreciate or even understand, and far more than we love him. He gave himself up for us, both in his life and death, that he might redeem us and reconcile us to himself. He's patient with us, and he continually offers us his grace. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And providentially, he meets all of our needs for both body and soul. So there's no amount of good works that we can offer to God to make him love us more. 
His love for us is bound up in our union with Christ. The Lord is pleased with Christ's obedience, and through faith in him, we are made right with God. So don't become discouraged when your feelings of devotion to the Lord aren't what you think they should be. Instead, look to Christ and trust his love for you. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Trust him and find rest. So if Israel's love for God is intended to be the manifestation of their covenant faithfulness, then how is Israel to understand God's love for them? Joshua points to two things that Israel should consider when, when thinking about God's love for them. The Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's warnings. First, Joshua reminds them of the Lord's demonstrated faithfulness. Look at verses 2 and 3 and 9 and 10, starting in 2 and 3. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Verses 9 and 10. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to, flight a, uh, puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. The people of Israel saw and experienced how the Lord had fought for them and driven out the surrounding nations. In calling the leaders of Israel to consider God's faithfulness, Joshua is following in the pattern of Moses when he instructed Joshua to do this very same thing following the battle of the kings of Sion and Og. Here's Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 3. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will, so will the Lord God do to all the kingdoms to which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Do you hear the similarities? Moses tells the people of... Uh, Moses tells the people and Joshua to recall what he had seen regarding the Lord's victory and then promises that the Lord will fight the nations in Canaan in the same way that he fought the kings of Sion and Og. Joshua was to have confidence in Israel's ability to possess the land because the Lord had demonstrated himself faithful in defeating these kings. Seeing the Lord work in this way strengthened the faith of Israel to believe the promises yet to be fulfilled that he made to them back at, uh, at Sinai in Exodus 22, where the Lord says concerning this conquest, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out and you shall drive them out before you. Ahead of the people of Israel, the Lord sent the commander of his army to defeat 31 Canaanite kings and tribes. And little by little, the Lord performed mighty works to which the people of Israel were witnesses, including great signs and wonders like the fall of the walls of Jericho and the sun standing still for a whole day during the battle of Gibeon. The Lord fought for them 
and for their, for their sake, exactly as he promised that he would do. And so, they should have, so the people of Israel should have every expectation that he would continue to fulfill his promise to drive the remainder of the people out of the land during the completion of the conquest. But the Lord had not just fulfilled his promise to defeat Israel's enemies. He had also kept his promise to give them rest and inheritance in the land that he had promised their fathers. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for you, for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea out west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord God promised you. Lord your God promised you. Joshua reminds the leaders that all the land has been allotted according to God's promises, and that even the land that has not yet been fully possessed is their inheritance. They are not to compromise with the Canaanite remnant. Instead, they are to complete the conquest and rid the land of idols and the places of worship dedicated to them. It's as if Joshua is saying, look, I have the will. I've read it in your presence. You all know what the Lord is giving to you as your inheritance. Now is the time to finish taking possession of it. Don't forfeit it because you didn't show up to claim what was yours. Joshua sums up his call to resist compromise by considering the Lord's faithfulness in verse 14. He says, And now I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one, has, not one of them has failed. The Lord is clear here. He has kept all of his promises to Israel. He has fought for them. He has provided good things for them. He is trustworthy to help them complete the task of possessing the land and establishing justice, righteousness, and true worship in it. Israel should lovingly and confidently obey him as their good husband. Amid the ongoing work of sanctification in the Christian life, the Lord has given us a means to remember his faithfulness as we fight to resist compromise. He's given us the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we consider how our God fought and defeated our greatest enemies and how he is coming back again to consummate his kingdom and to give us our final rest. We see that all the promises of God are yes and amen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see that all of this is done because of his great love for us. A love we did not deserve, but rather received from God because he overflows with mercy and delights in redeeming sinners. Recall the words of institution that we say every week. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper is like a regular family meal where we all come together and see and partake of the tangible elements, reminding us of the faithfulness and love of our great head and husband, Jesus Christ. As we take communion today, I want you to be encouraged and be resolved to love the Lord 
by considering what he has already done for you. In addition to considering the Lord's faithfulness, Joshua also wants the people of Israel to understand what the consequences of compromise are. The Lord drove out the people of Canaan because of their iniquity. But due to Israel's imperfect obedience, there remained in the land a remnant of pagan idolaters that presented a threat a threat to Israel's devotion to the Lord. Once again, to return to the marriage analogy, it's as if Israel has moved into her new home with her covenant husband, but she has refused to drive off her old suitors from her property, and their presence is a perpetual temptation to faithlessness. Here Joshua presents a warning to the bride from the groom in verses 12 and 13. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So if Israel clings, same word as we see in verse 8, if Israel clings, makes marriages with or associates with, that's also the same word as mix in verse 7, so we have a connection between these verses, then the Lord would no longer fight for them and the people of the land would become a scourge to them. Once again, this should have been no surprise as Moses prophesied what would happen to the people of Israel if they compromised and acted faithlessly toward the Lord. Hear his words from Numbers 33. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So when I see, I don't know about you, when I see the term thorns in the Bible, my mind is immediately drawn back to Genesis 3, when God pronounces his curse on Adam for his sin, causing the ground to bring forth thorns and thistles instead of its bounty. That which was to be a blessing to Adam ultimately became a curse to him. And in his judgment against them, the Lord cast Adam and his wife out of the garden and away from the good land and into exile. Joshua knows that the people of Israel face a similar judgment from the Lord if they break his covenant. And as certain as the promise is of the Lord's blessing, so too is the certainty of his judgment. Looking at verses 15 and 16. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, So the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. God's purpose in the redemption of Israel is to make them holy and to put them on display as reflections of his glorious character to all the nations. If they rebel against him, 
as their father Adam did, then they too will perish from off the good land. The Lord will treat the people of Israel as if they were Canaanites. Joshua's purpose in presenting these warnings to Israel is not to be harsh, but it's to be honest. There is no neutrality with God. He alone is worthy of worship. And as his image bearers, we were created to reflect his glory. There is also no life apart from God. Israel's rejection of Yahweh as their God means that they are cutting themselves off from the author of life. The warning, then, is an act of love, similar to a parent that warns their child of the consequence of sticking their hand on a hot stove or playing in the middle of the street. Failure to warn the people of Israel about the consequences of compromise would be at best an act of indifference and at worst, an act of hatred. The warnings of God are intentionally direct, descriptive, and shocking to human ears. God's holiness is foreign to us. Whereas we're prone to justify our thoughts and our words and our deeds, no matter how selfish or harmful that they may be to others, God is uncompromisingly good and pure and just and righteous and all-knowing and all-powerful. And the fact that we were created to reflect his image and to reflect his justice and his righteousness, but yet we fail at every point to do so, should be a cause for serious concern. If you are not concerned about this fact, then I worry that you lack an appreciation for just how other God is from us. But God's warnings are also a manifestation of his grace towards us. In his justice, God would have been perfectly within his rights to summon all of Adam's descendants into existence at the moment he sinned and condemn us all to eternal punishment in hell. Because as our appointed representative by God, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Likewise, God could have just simply been silent and had nothing more to say to Adam's descendants after the fall and allowing us to remain in ignorance about the state of our condemnation until we meet him in final judgment. But he didn't do that. Instead, he revealed more of himself to us in the form of both law and gospel, and ultimately in the flesh through his only son, Jesus Christ. By his grace, we have knowledge of the problem we face as sinners from a holy God, and we also have knowledge of the means of salvation. The law's threat of judgment, the law's threats of judgment are intended to lead us to repentance and thereby to secure for us the mercy of God in Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but can see the seriousness of your sin and understand that God is right and just to judge you for it, then there is good news. You can turn from your sin today, and because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, you can be forgiven. If you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, 
or follow Christ or what repentance is or anything else that we've said this morning, please, after the service, find me, find one of the other pastors, find another Christian, another member of this church, and we would love to be able to talk to you and share with you more of this good news. If you are a Christian, the warnings of Scripture are one of the reasons that we practice church discipline. Our goal is to confront those who profess faith in Christ in their sin and to call them back to repentance. When members of a church refuse to listen to their brother or sister and the elders, then we bring the matter before the church as an act of warning to the offending member. The ultimate act of disfellowship or excommunication is not an act of divine judgment per se, but rather a warning that the church can no longer affirm that a member is walking in a manner consistent with their profession of faith. It's intended to be a serious and sobering event for both the church and the member that each may recognize the consequences of false profession will ultimately lead to everlasting condemnation. The goal of church discipline, though, is restoration of the member back to the church, hoping that they will come to their senses, repent, and be restored to the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, like the people of Israel, we too face the temptation to compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil. As Christians, we have a better rest than Joshua gave to the people of Israel. Our rest isn't from enemies who are only able to kill the body. Our rest, won for us by Jesus, who is the greater Joshua, is from the bondage to sin that makes us God's enemies. Jesus turned away the Father's wrath from us, making satisfaction for it by the blood of his sacrifice, and he reconciled us to God. Through Jesus, we have peace with God and enjoy the true Sabbath rest that he's given his people. However, the age in which we live is one of both the already and the not yet. The already, as in the finished work of Christ for our salvation, and the not yet, as in the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives until we meet the Lord again, either at our death or when he returns. We find ourselves in an ongoing, often tiring and discouraging struggle against the ongoing presence of sin as we face the temptation to compromise both personally and corporately every single day. We're tempted to compromise with our sin by abusing the grace of God and downplaying or justifying our sin rather than confessing it and repenting of it. We're tempted corporately to compromise God's holy standards and seek the approval of a world that demands we affirm ideas regarding human sexuality, marriage, and the family that contradict his word. Many of us face very real consequences of the loss of jobs and social standing or public shunning and marginalization by maintaining our public witness to Christ. As a church, we're tempted to compromise the pure worship of God according to his word by adopting man-made methods in the pursuit of numbers, influence, or prestige. You see, the problem with compromise is that it always starts small by making excuses for our pet peccadilloes. 
But compromise with sin has a way of snowballing that is uncontrollable. And before we know it, sin has cost us more than we ever intended to pay and taken us further than we ever intended to go. Listen to Paul's instructions concerning compromise with, remaining in, with the remaining indwelling sin to the church at Colossae. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The call to persevering faithfulness and holiness applies as much to us today as it did to the conquest generation of Israel. The Lord has given us means of, his means of grace to remember his faithfulness in the Lord's Supper and to take seriously his warnings about the consequences of sin in church discipline. These means of grace are intended to lead us to repentance and to fan the flame of love for the Lord as we grow in holiness and become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian attending today and have not made a commitment to join a local church, I'd encourage you to follow the Lord in obedience and to seek member in a gospel-preaching church. I happen to know one I can recommend. The local church is the institution giving the authority by Christ to preach his word and practice his ordinance and discipline. It's a community of sinners saved by grace, committed to fighting sin, loving one another, and becoming more like Christ as we resist the temptation to compromise. Unite yourself to the local church today and receive the blessings that Christ has waiting for you there. Let's pray. Our most gracious, loving, heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that these things have been written down for our benefit. Father, we acknowledge that we face the temptation to compromise. We face the temptation to call the truth lies and lies the truth. We face the temptation to be silent, Lord, when we should speak up. We face the temptation to run from you when we need to turn to you in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would help us to look into your law and to see your character and to see your justice and your righteousness and to love it. And Father, I pray that you would help us to look into your word and see your gospel how we do not have to rely on our own spiritual efforts, Lord. That it is not about the work that we do, that there are no amount of works that we can bring to you, no good thing that can be done to erase the sin that we have committed, but rather that our standing before you is based on grace. We thank you for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has defeated sin and death for us. And we pray, Father, that by the work of your Spirit, you would continue to sanctify us and help us to become more like Christ until the day of his return. In his name we pray. Amen.